Please stand for our scripture reading today. It be found in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 28. It be found on page 725 in the Pew Bible in front of you. My servant David shall, keep, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Let's pray. Father, you are our God and we are your people. And this is your word, Lord. And I pray now that you would speak to us, that you would change our hearts, that you would mold us to make us more like you, that we would know you more, that we would love you more, that we would be called to to serve and to give and to be people who are filled with your love, filled with your peace, that we would extend that peace, this good news to all those around us, people here in Colorado Springs, in the West and in the world. And we pray now that you would speak through your servant, Mark, that you would use his words to edify, to build us up, and to proclaim your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Lee. And on Friday, we had our um, staff Christmas party, and it is uh, such a joy to work with so many people here, part of the Village 7 staff. Uh, one of the things just to encourage you is... Um, Those of us who are pastors on the platform oftentimes get our thanks, but there are so many people who make um, this church happen. I mean, the building does not clean itself, amazingly. Uh, uh, The things that don't get repaired on their own. We have people who work with our children and our office staff. And so if you see those folks walking around and doing things, if you could thank them, because without them, the ministry of Village 7 really doesn't happen. And so I just want to express publicly my thanks for them. Many of them are not here, but I'd like for you to express your thanks for them as well, for the work they do. The hardest part of their job is they have to put up with me, so uh, but, uh, but we enjoy, enjoy putting up with them. Well, if you were to travel to the northwest corner of Maine, you would come to a town of Eustis, and Eustis is really, town might be exaggerating it, it is a, a village of about a thousand people, and near Eustis is Flagstaff Lake. And while Flagstaff Lake is not that deep, it's only uh, about 45 feet deep at its deepest part, it, it has many things underneath because where Flagstaff Lake now is used to be the town of Flagstaff. In the 1950s, they decided to dam the Dead River in order to provide uh, electricity to the region. And so as they made preparations to, uh, to dam the river, People realized, well, the whole town's going to be flooded, so why fix anything? 
And so nobody bothered to paint your house. Why, you know, you're not going to paint your house if it's going to be destroyed. You don't repair the streets. You don't, you don't fix anything. In fact, before the town was ever flooded, the town actually became uninhabitable uh, because no one was doing anything to take care of it. The town had no future. Why fix anything? So what you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. If you don't believe there's much of a future, you're going to live one way. If you believe there's an exciting future, you'll live another way. And uh, what you believe about the future determines how you live in the present. And the Bible tells us that all of history is moving to a very definite conclusion. It will be the consummation of all things. The world as we now know it Uh, will come to an end, and a new world order will come. This world will be made new, but the kingdom of this world will be passing away, and the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. Christ came to bring his kingdom initially 2,000 years ago, but we don't yet have its fullness. We don't yet have its consummation, but that will happen uh, when Jesus returns. And during this Advent season, we're celebrating the coming of our Lord. Uh, At Village 7, we're celebrating particularly the idea that Jesus is our Emmanuel, that he is God with us. But the name Advent, the term Advent means coming or arrival. And it's not simply referring to the first coming. That is a big part of it. And so, so during Advent, everything leads up to the Christmas Day celebration where we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. But at Advent, we're also looking forward to the second coming of Jesus because it's at the second coming of Jesus that we finally get the fullness, that we get the, the full expression of what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel, that we will get to live in God's presence, that God will be with us and be with us fully. Well, the passage we read moments ago was originally given to the Jews living in exile in Babylon. Now, this whole idea of exile is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. In fact, you might even say it's the major theme. So think about how the Bible begins. God creates the world. He creates the Garden of Eden. He puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And by looking at the language, the way that God describes the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was not just a garden. It was also a temple. God was there with them. Adam was the high priest of the temple. He was to work and tend the garden. Same verbs used later on to describe the works of the priest in the temple of God. And so there they are enjoying the presence of God. They're enjoying Emmanuel. But you know what happens. They sin against God. They reject God's authority. They reject God's rule. And so then they are sent into exile east of Eden. They're cast out of the garden. And so now they are apart from God's presence. And then the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of God talking about and explaining how once again he will dwell with his people, how he will become Emmanuel once again. And that storyline in the Old Testament hinges on the people of Israel, where God calls Abraham, who's living far away in Ur of Chaldees, far away, and he calls him back to the promised land. And the reason I say back to the promised land, if you compare the boundary markers in Genesis 2 of the Garden of Eden with the boundary markers that God gives the promised land of Genesis 15, and you see the river names, and and if you know something about the other rivers, you realize that God's not calling uh, Abraham from where Eden was, but he's calling him back to Eden. What's God doing? He's starting over. He's beginning this project, calling people back to be with themselves there in his presence. And uh, and yet, uh, some things go terribly wrong, uh, even after he calls Abraham back. 
And so we see in Ezekiel 37 uh, some of what's gone wrong and what God is going to do about it. Because in Ezekiel 37, we have a reenactment, in a sense, of the exile from Eden and of God's restoration uh, of his presence with his people. So here in Ezekiel 37, we learn how we can experience Emmanuel. Let's begin, though, by looking at our own need for hope, our need for hope. Now, the Jews, uh, the people of God, had experienced, to some degree, Emmanuel. They had experienced uh, God's presence with them because, as we just said, God had called Abraham back to the promised land. And so the promised land wasn't just any piece of real estate. It was significant by its location because of, of where it was, by the boundary markers that we mentioned. And so they came back to the promised land. After 400 years in Egypt, the Israelites come in, they settle the land, and they build the temple there. And the temple was the symbol of God's presence. And the idea was that they are the people of God, and there is God dwelling in their midst. He is, he is living with his people. And so they experienced God's presence. But just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites rebelled. First, that led to a terrible civil war, dividing the nation in two. The southern kingdom becomes the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom becomes the nation of Israel. And then in 722, the northern kingdom is completely wiped out. The ten tribes of the part of the northern kingdom are destroyed. They're scattered, simply wiped off the map. The southern kingdom uh, does not do much better. Uh, just like Adam and Eve, they sinned against God in 597 B.C., the nation of Judah uh, and his rebellion against God uh, was punished, and they uh, then be tried to rebel against the Babylonian Empire. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, king of the, the emperor of Babylon at the time, was relatively merciful at first. He plundered some of the city of Jerusalem, but he did not destroy it. Uh, but he did take some of the best and the brightest inhabitants from Jerusalem and brought them into exile to live in Babylon. Among those exiles was a 25-year-old priest named Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel is living there along the Kedar River uh, with the other Babylonian exiles. Now, as he gathered there along the river, the people assumed their exile would not be very long. They are, after all, the people of God. Certainly, God would, uh, would rescue them and bring them home. But about 10 years later... They tried to rebel again against Nebuchadnezzar, and this time Nebuchadnezzar was not so kind. He invaded with his army. He leveled the city. He killed many of the inhabitants. He destroyed the temple. For the inhabitants that were left, he took them on a long march all the way back to Babylon. So going from today's map, going from Israel back to Iraq, right? Uh, a, a long, long march through the desert. And so soon the new wave of exile joined Ezekiel in Babylon. The people were emaciated. They were near starvation from the long siege and from the long journey. They'd watched their friends and family die from hunger and disease and slaughter at the hand of the Babylonians. And once again, we see the pattern we saw before with Adam and Eve. First, they live in the presence of God. They sinned against God. And now as a result, they're in exile. Now remember for the Jews, the being in exile was not simply they were no longer in their homeland. You know, many of us are not in our homeland. How many of you are not from Colorado? Like, okay. <laughs> not many of us are. And so some of us are in well, not really exile. In fact, if you sent some of you back to your homelands, that would be exile, right? You know, uh, you know, 
I mean, you know, there's a reason you don't want to be in Kansas. No offense to Kansas, but oh, nobody wants to live in Kansas. Seriously, you'd much rather be in Colorado. Um, and so, uh, so we're here, but, it's, but you think of your homeland as the being where your people are. But for the Israelites, it wasn't just where their people are. It is where God's presence was. And so being exiled was not simply sentimental. It was a sign that they were apart from God. And now since the city was wiped out and the temple was destroyed, it seemed impossible for them ever to be fully in the presence of God again. You know, how could they ever have hope? It seemed beyond repair. And, and many of us understand this. As we live in the world, we are exiles. We are living east of Eden. We live in a world that is broken, a world that is a mess, a world where there's suffering, where there's pain, where there's, we, we, you know, where there's, there's hurt. We, we, we long for peace on earth, and we'd at least settle for some peace in our own household, right? It, things are not the way they ought to be. And, and it gets to the point where you've been living in exile for so long, and the world has been broken for so long, that, that you begin to wonder, is there any hope at all? I mean, many, many of us started off in our younger days with this, this youthful idealism that, that we're going to change the world, and the world's going to be a better place, and it's going to be a different place. You know, we went through a whole century like that. You remember what World War I was called? The war to end all wars. How'd that work out with World War II? We had the war to end all wars. We had the war to end poverty. We had the war on drugs. Uh, and, and we've had war, war, war. And, 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 and yet, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And, and furthermore, we seem to be becoming more, even more alienated from God. And so is there any hope? And for the Israelites living in exile, it appeared completely hopeless. What could possibly happen that is good now? We're dead the ten tribes are gone. We're in captivity. The temple is destroyed. There is no hope. Well, back to Ezekiel 37. Where's the hope? Here's our reason for hope. In Ezekiel 37, and you want to have your Bible open or at least your Bible app on your phone open because we're going to look at the entire chapter. And in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel gives us three reasons for hope. Three reasons for hope. And the first uh, reason for hope is the dry bones. The dry bones. Now, we're not going to read this, but in verses 1 through 14, you can see it there in your Bible. Uh, we have this, this amazing story where God invites Ezekiel out to this valley, and the valley is full of bones, and not just bones, but them dry bones. And by dry bones means there's not a bit of meat on these bones. Your dog would not want these bones. And God takes Ezekiel out. He's looking at the valley of bones, and God says to Ezekiel, you know, he calls Ezekiel, son of man. That's just the title God gives Ezekiel. He says, son of man, can these bones live? Now, that seems like an obvious question. If somebody were to take you out and they show you a skeleton and they say, do you think we can bring this back to life? Maybe a little CPR, you know, maybe those little, little electric things, you know? You say, no, he's dead. You cannot bring him back to life. There's, there's no hope for them. So Ezekiel says, God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel goes, hmm, this seems like a trick question. Because, because no, the obvious answer is no. And, uh, and so, but God's the one asking the questions. And he says, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. 
So God says, Ezekiel, I've got an assignment for you. I want you to preach. And I want you to start preaching to these bones. You know, I've been in that setting before, um, but um, <laughs> not here, just kidding. Um, I want you to preach to the bones. And, uh, and so again, you know, think how crazy this is. Preaching in a graveyard of, uh, you, know, you know, they can't even be zombies. They don't have enough meat on them. And, and so Ezekiel starts to preach. And then there's this rattling sound, click, click, click. You can imagine how that sounds like all these bones just start clicking together. Shin bone to the thigh bone and the, the, to the ankle bone and to the toe bone or however the bones connect. I, I flunked it, uh, that part of biology. Uh, and all the bones just start rattling together and they come together. And then the bones are standing there. You got skeletons and then meat goes onto the bones and then skin goes onto the bones and standing before Ezekiel is this vast army, but they're not alive. So God says, I want you to keep preaching. This time preach to the wind. And the wind blows and the spirit enters these bodies and they become alive. And God says, this is what I'm doing. God's people is like they're dead. There's no life in them. They are like dry bones, but I'm gonna send my spirit and I'm gonna bring the dead back to life. That's an image of what happens when anyone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, this should give you great confidence in your evangelism. Do you think the bones all came to life because Ezekiel was an amazing preacher? You know, I mean, it had nothing to do with this preaching. It had to, this, it had to do with the Spirit of God. And, and the Bible says that all of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. We're not just a little sick. We don't need a little resuscitation. We don't need some CPR. We are dead, dead, dead. That's how dead we are. We are dry bones, spiritually speaking. And yet the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and makes people alive. And he uses the preaching of people like Ezekiel and people like us because it's not up to the preacher, it's up to the Holy Spirit to make people alive. And so God does this great work of bringing them alive, changing lives. And so if you're a Christian, this also should be incredibly humbling. You're not a Christian because you heard the word and you said, I'm smart enough to believe this. You're not a Christian because you were humble enough to believe this. You're not a Christian because, because you figured this thing out. You're a Christian because the Spirit of God worked and brought your dead bones back to life. That's the only reason. And so, so here we see the amazing work of God's grace. Uh, they did nothing to save themselves. They did nothing to earn God's salvation. God does the work completely all by himself. And so, so we see that God says, I'm going to bring them back to life. So that's the image of the bones. But then in verses 15 to 23, we have this image of two sticks, of two sticks. And, uh, and it says sticks in our translation, but more than likely, uh, it could be better translated as two blocks of wood. And Ezekiel is to take one block of wood, and he's to write on this block of wood for Judah, the people of Israel associated with him. So, so notice he calls Judah the people of Israel. Then the other part of what he says, Joseph or Ephraim and the people of Israel. Now Joseph and Ephraim, Ephraim was the name of one of the tribes, uh, the 10 tribes of the northern uh, part of Israel. So this is representing the northern kingdom of Israel. The other block of wood represents the southern kingdom of Israel. Now remember, these two kingdoms, 350 years earlier, had been divided into two different nations through a bitter civil war and had never really been reunited. There had been some attempts, but never really been reunited. And Israel no longer existed. They were taken off by the Assyrians. 
And God says, I want you to take this, this represents the Judah part of Israel and the Ephraim part of Israel, and you're going to take them and you're going to put them together as one. Because God says, what I'm doing is I'm bringing back together the nation of Israel as a whole. There never were two peoples of God. There was never Judah and Israel anyway. There was always one nation, you just didn't know it. And I'm gonna reunite them as one and they will have one king, one Lord over them and they will be one nation. And so there's gonna be a reuniting of the kingdom. And it continues on this with the third image. And the third image is the image of the good shepherd the image of the good shepherd, and we find this in the verses we read moments ago, verses 24 to 28. And here, God tells them who this king will be who will unite them. Look again at verse 24. And he says, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now, God is not saying that he's going to bring back David from the dead to be the kingdom. Rather, this is a, a, a prophecy about David's true son, the greater David, about the Messiah, who is Jesus. That Jesus would be the, the, the shepherd who's going to unite the people and who's going to rule over the people. And so Jesus uh, seems to have the book of Ezekiel in mind several places in the Gospel of John. And in John 10, verse 11, Jesus takes this prophecy of Ezekiel and he applies it to himself. And he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy of Ezekiel because I'm the one who's going to shepherd God's people. Now, not only is Jesus going to shepherd God's people, the reunion of the, the Israelites and the, and the people of Judah, it's not just those who are the ethnic descendants of Abraham. Jesus goes on to say this in John chapter 10, and he says, and I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now in John 10, when Jesus says, I have sheep not of this fold, what he's saying is, I'm not just the shepherd for the, Gen for the Jews, I'm gonna be the shepherd for the Gentiles. It's not just those who are from the 12 tribes of Israel. I've got sheep out there among the Samaritans, among the Greeks, among the barbarians. I am bringing in people in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise from every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group, and we're all one big family. And so what we see here with Jesus is that ultimately the people of God are one. God does not have two people. This is Ezekiel's point and it's Jesus' point. It's not like God had the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, nor is it that God has the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, nor is it that God had Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. There's one flock, one people, one Lord, one shepherd, shepherd of them all. One people that Christ is Lord over and he's uniting them all. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says that Gentiles are fellow heirs, this is in Ephesians 3, are fellow heirs and members of the same body as the Jews. And just as the people of Israel and Judah are one, the Gentiles, those who are outside Abraham's family, have been added to the family of God. We've been grafted in, as Paul would say, into Israel as full heirs with one king and one shepherd. Now, ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, we lived in a world of division. Remember, what's the very next thing that happens 
Genesis 3, they're exiled the Garden of Eden. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. We see division of humanity beginning. And before you even get to, to you know, Genesis 11, uh, we have the nations are so corrupt and, and the, people are, the people are so corrupt that God, in order to maintain any sort of life on earth, has to divide the nations through the Tower of Babel where everyone's speaking different languages and there's the division of the nations. It's the full disintegration of humanity. We are, we are scattered from one another. We are apart. We are at war. We're not together. But what God is saying he's going to do is one day he's going to undo Babel. He's going to undo what Cain and Abel did. He's going to bring the people back together as one family. There will be peace on earth. And it's peace that does not come about by us simply ignoring our differences and pretending like we're all the same. It's peace by coming about because there will be one Lord, one shepherd, one king. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that day comes, we will have peace. We will have peace. And so it all then culminates then in this Emmanuel promise. Look again at verses 26 and 27. It's, it's not just there, it's throughout this passage. But notice what God says. I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, when he says, I'll set them in their land and multiply them, remember that the nation of, of, of Judah and Israel has been decimated. But God says, I'm going to bring about such peace and prosperity and flourishing that they will multiply. But I will be there. I will be there in their midst. I will be dwelling with them. I'm not going to be far off and distant. It's going to be like in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked in the garden and talked with God face to face says, that's how I will be with my people. I will dwell among them. You know, Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God. They were exiled from Eden because of their sin. The Israelites had had the temple in their midst. They're exiled because of their sin. And yet God is bringing them back together and promises that forever he will live in their midst. Now, one of the questions that we would have is this. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God, sinned, and were exiled. The Israelites lived in the presence of God, sinned, and were exiled. What makes us think we're going to do any better? Do you really think you would do any better than Adam and Eve? You know, Adam, who, who before the serpent in the garden knew, knew no sin? Do you think that, that we would be any better than the Israelites? You ever read through the Old Testament going, I can't believe how boneheaded these people are, you know? Do you really think you would do any better? What makes us think we're going to do any better? How do we know we're not going to be exiled again? Well, the reason we do not have to fear failing is that God says he's going to make an everlasting covenant. And this covenant does not depend on us. In verse 26, he says he's making an everlasting covenant. But the difference is this covenant will not depend on us. And that's why we must always look forward to the second advent of Jesus in light of the first advent of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He came as the second Adam. And this time, the second Adam did what the first Adam did not. He obeys God's command. He fulfills God's law. He obeys perfectly. Uh, he is the, the true Israel 
who's united to God, but unlike the Israel of old, he is the true Israel who obeys God's law and obeys it perfectly. Then at age 33, they took him outside to the city of Jerusalem, away from the temple, and there in exile, they crucified him. And at his highest moment of grief, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was exiled from the Father so that we could be invited in. He was taken away from God's presence so that we could enjoy God's presence. He took the curse of our disobedience so that we might receive the blessing of his obedience. And it is because Jesus paid the penalty in full that we can now draw near to, dare, dare to draw near to God without shame and without fear. Here's how we know we will never be cast from the presence of God. It's because Jesus was cast from the presence of the Father in our place. And so we have nothing to fear. The penalty has been taken away. And God can say, therefore, I am making an everlasting covenant. I will dwell in their midst forever. Now, what difference does this make? Jesus is coming again. Good news. What do we do with that? Uh, how, how does that change how we live? Well, let's look at the power of hope. The power of hope. I believe if we understand this and believe this, I, you know, I, I think most of us believe this, but I don't think it grips us. I don't think many of us live with a passionate expectation and longing for the return of Jesus. Many things we look forward to. Our children are looking forward to Christmas and wondering what's going to be under the tree. Uh, some of you remember looking forward to your wedding day. You may be looking forward to a great vacation. You, you have this anticipation about things, but do we anticipate uh, the coming of our Lord? And, and, and if we did, how would it change us? You know, I've heard people say that, that some people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. But could it be to be of earthly good, you need to be heavenly-minded? Um, you know, uh, one thing to see, if we don't, we don't look forward to the return of Jesus, what's going to happen is, is we look at this world and we begin to think that the way things are is the way things are. That, that's, that's just how it is. That things will not get better. And, and if that happens, it's going to lead to one of two things. One, uh, it, for some of you, you can just say, if this is as good as it gets, then I don't think I want to keep going. Because this isn't that good. If you have no hope that it's ever going to get better, then it's very hard to get up in the morning and, and get after the day. Uh, the other temptation is, if this is as good as it gets, then I better get everything I can now because it's not going to get any better. You, know? uh, you better grab for all the gusto you can now because this is as good as it's going to get. Now, Karl Marx, you know, given this quote many times, he said that, um, Religion is the opiate of the masses. He believed that uh, religion is a way that the, um, the rich kept the poor in check by saying, hey, your life stinks now, but heaven one day. Uh, but um, actually, a, a Nobel laureate, Chekhov's Elaz, uh, observed that Marx's drug analogy actually cuts both ways. He said, a true opium of the people is the belief of nothingness after death. That's a huge solace for thinking that we're not going to be judged for our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, and murders. Now, if you don't believe that there's a king coming, he's going to bring about justice, a king's coming, he's going to bring about a new world order, then, then you might as well live for the moment. You might as well grab uh, for what you can now uh, because, because 
what's the point of, of waiting, right? Why live differently? Why not live for yourself? It, it leads to a selfish mode of living, uh, to do only that which pleases yourself or those who might be dear to you. Uh, but the, and there's also a sense of emptiness. Because what happens when you've been living for yourself for all these years and all you've got is yourself? <laughs> you know? It's um, you're thinking there must be something more. But if you know that there is something more, if you believe that Jesus one day will return, that he will make this world right, or as uh, Sam Ganji says in Lord of the Rings, that everything sad is going to become untrue. Now, if that's true, then you can endure, you can endure hardship in this world with perseverance and with joy. Think of it this way. Let's say there are two workers. They're working in this awful, awful job, minimum wage, terrible work conditions. Their boss is a tyrant and a bully, and uh, they've been at this job for the same, same length of time. So two workers, same job. Both are being paid minimum wage and, uh, and, and probably being cheated at that. But one of the workers knows at the end of the year, he's going to inherit the company. The other worker has no such knowledge or no such hope. So what are their two approaches to work going to be? The one who doesn't realize or doesn't know, think he's going to inherit the company, he's going to go, man, this job is awful. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I hate doing this. It is miserable. I don't think I can keep going. The one who thinks at the end of the year he's going to inherit the company is going, man, this job stinks. But it's only a year. It's only a year. And at the end of the year, I'll have the company. At the end of the year, I'll be rich. At the end of the year, you know, I can put up with this for another year. One man's looking and saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. The other one's saying, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can do this. What's the difference? The circumstances are identical. Circumstances exactly the same. One has hope for the future, the other does not. What you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. Uh, and so, and so it, it leads us to, uh, to different conditions. It, it's the expectation of hope. And, and hope for the future does not make us less, less productive. It makes us more. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who sat uh, on the foot of the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Lewis is saying the more we understand the kingdom that is to come, the more it's going to drive us to be effective. If we're to live with joy, joyful anticipation in the, that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to dwell with his people, it, it causes us to live our lives without fear and with, bold, with, with a great boldness. You know, have you ever wondered, how did Christians face the lions? You know, here you are, you're being face fed to the lions, and all you have to do is deny Jesus. How did John Huss, uh, the great martyr who was killed in Prague, burned at the stake? You know, what gave him the courage to, to endure that? Uh, what about Jim Elliott? The missionary who was, who was murdered uh, in uh, taking the gospel to, to the natives in South America. What, what drove them 
to, to be willing to sacrifice, and not just to lose a lot, but to, to lose what, what the world would say is everything. It's because they believe that Jesus is coming back and the kingdom of God is better than the kingdom of this world. You know, have you ever wondered why some Christians are willing to give up their career, move to a foreign country, away from family and friends, labor for poor pay in order to take the gospel to the nations? It's because they believe that Jesus is coming back and that the kingdom of God is greater than anything that the world has to offer. Have you ever wondered why many Christians in the church are not willing to do these things? Why are many Christians not willing to give generously? Why are many Christians not willing to serve in difficult situations? Why are many Christians not willing to engage in God's mission in difficult contexts? Could it be that we don't really believe in the reality of the second coming? Could it be that we actually believe this world has more to offer us than Jesus? And Scott Sauls, I think, put it quite well. He says, you know, if you understand the gospel, for every believer, the worst case scenario for your future life is the resurrection and life everlasting. That's not bad. That's not bad. Once you realize that Jesus will return, that he is Emmanuel, and that he'll make his dwelling place for this people, then nothing in this world can hold you, and no fear can paralyze you. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you that the coming of our Lord is what gives us hope. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came 2,000 years ago, and you announced the coming and the arrival of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we, we look forward to it with anticipation, knowing what you did 2,000 years ago with the healing of, of the sick, the, the raising of the dead, the sight to the blind, the feeding of the hungry, uh, all of those things, to think of what it will be when your reign is full and complete just uh, boggles our minds. And so, Lord, we pray that as your people, we would live with that joyful anticipation, that we would live not for this world, but for the world that is to come when Jesus reigns over all and when you will dwell with us, your sanctuary will be with us and we will have the joy of walking with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.